right, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Agora podcast today. We have Joe Machella, a very distinguished uh, Olympic weightlifting coach, wrestler, coach wrestlers, done all this amazing, crazy stuff. Uh, very excited to have you here. Thank you. In Thank the you very brand new studio. Yeah. That is an honor. noticed it's a... Uh, it's a new, it's a new studio here, so yeah, kind of mix it up. Uh, let's <laughs> just go ahead and get started, Joe. You just want to tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, what you, what got you into exercise, fitness, and all that good stuff. Um, well, I've always been active in sports growing up as a kid in New Jersey, um, playing a bunch of different sports between soccer, wrestling, and track and field, doing a little bit of baseball, um, and then I started lifting weights when I was about 12 years old. You know, I was always an overweight kid and. I found, uh, you know, exercise and special lifting weights. One, I was good at it, and two, was helping me um, get in better shape and lose a little bit of weight. And then as I got older, I saw that strength training made me a better athlete. And in, in particular, sports like track and field and, and, and in wrestling, where I, I accelerated the most. And then I was able to um, do very well in high school wrestling in New Jersey. And then I was able to earn a scholarship for, for wrestling in college. Spent two years at Rutgers University in New Jersey and then transferred into um, Arizona State where I finished my career. And while I was there, I, I studied more about exercise science. Um, one of the things I felt then when I, I came to college in wrestling is that um, everyone was trying to train me like a football player because mm -hmm. I was a big guy. I was a heavyweight on the wrestling team and I felt that it wasn't the best way to train me. Mm -hmm. So then it made me more interested in learning how other athletes needed to be trained that was different you know, than just training for football. And then I came across the sport of Olympic weightlifting and saw that it was a superior method of training to be strong, powerful, and athletic. And then I started incorporating movements to help me with wrestling. And then when I converted into then my coaching career of strength conditioning, I was using it as a main theme and a main uh, methodology of how I coach my athletes. And during that time period, I then I started exploring more the competitive side of coaching Olympic weightlifting and fell in love with it. You know, the, the competitive drive that I had with wrestling then kind of gravitated into now the competitive drive as a coach. And I was very successful early on with working with a lot of young athletes and getting them to national levels and they were winning national level competitions. And then it progressed into then international competitions, meddling international competitions. And for the better part of almost 18 years, um, I pretty much have, have put an athlete on every major national and international uh, team in the U.S. and then culminating, uh, culminating my career in 2012, I was the head women's coach of the Olympic team. I had an athlete that finished in the top five um, that year. It was it was a pretty good and pre pretty prestigious event, and it just kept going. You know, I haven't slowed down yeah. every year. Pretty much all but like two years of the last 18 years, I've had an athlete that has either competed at a national event or medaled at a national event. Um, now we have kids as young as 11 years old, and we have athletes as old as 65 actually. Oh, wow. That can be. Yeah, know. Olympics That's can't really crazy. attach any more prestige. Yeah, that. we're getting there. We're getting there. We don't have a gold medal yet, but we're yeah. working on it. Yeah, so. it's, uh, it's quite the resume. <laughs> um, so, you mentioned um, uh, weightlifting. So, weightlifting is is obviously your forte, and um, I was always wondering. I, I think a lot of strength coaches um, in the United States have kind of. Um, has already seen the value of weightlifting um, when it comes to developing stronger, more powerful athletes. Um, and in particular, I observed this um, when I was interning at SCC. I was working with their head and strength conditioning coach, and she had their athletes do a lot of weightlifting movements, most notably just the, um, um, the power version, the power clean and then the power snatch. But what I noticed was um, a lot of these athletes weren't really performing the movements um, correctly, 
So I'm not really seeing the transfer over to their sport. Do you think uh, it's valuable to still have those movements into like let's say the football team's strength conditioning program even if they're not doing it let's say like form wise perfectly as a like an actual olympic weightlifter would the the short answer is no okay the the problem you get is with any activity you know sport new movement that there's research or people feel that is very beneficial like doing olympic lifting People go, you know, we need to implement that in our program. We need our football team, our track team to start doing that. But the problem is that they don't study the the breakdown and the progressions that are needed to to use those movements successfully. And what they'll do is they'll try to implement the movement, you know, unaware that the athlete may have limiting factors of flexibility, coordination, prior injury, or they just are not ready to move on to the movement. There are certain stages that have to be mastered first that if you do that, you will then have the, the success. People will just say, we're just going to throw the movement in there, like doing a bicep curl. It's a very simple exercise, a bicep curl, and they'll be like, well, it's simple. Well, the snatch or the power snatch is very complex. So what happens is coaches are like, you got to do this now. We need results right now. As opposed to saying, well, we need to teach them the foundation first. And it may take three weeks. It may take six weeks. It may take a year for them to get to the final product. But the, in the meantime, they're going to develop aspects of flexibility, strength of position, general coordination, areas uh, of strength, say, in the lower back because they have to do, they're all doing isometric positions to their holding. Um, and a lot of coaches just don't want to have the patience for that. Whether they themselves don't want to have the patience or their sports coaches that they're working with say, hey, I need to see number of results. Why isn't this kid squatting 500 pounds? Why isn't this kid cleaning 300 pounds? And you're going, well, coach, I need six weeks or I need eight weeks to get them to a certain progression point. They're going, no, 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 you need it now. So, so there's pressure that way. So what happens is they get the fast food mentality and they just kind of throw it out there. Well, last time I think, you know, you want your, your grandma's home cooking or you want McDonald's, okay? No offense to McDonald's, but it's not <laughs> as good. But you want something that has now no, been no. taking the time, yeah. okay? And if they do that, they do it the right way. And there are coaches out there to do it, but some don't. And we always say that we'd rather have you not teach it if you don't fully understand it, okay? Because you're going to wind up getting someone hurt or you're not going to effectively get the, the movement out of there. People will look at 1968 Olympics in, in, in Mexico City where there was a lot of research done um, with athletes, whether it was you know, learning Olympic lifting, whether it was track and field, and they saw that the Olympic list that de developed a tremendous amount of power, development of vertical explosiveness. Then at some points they saw that Olympic lifters were actually faster than some 100-meter runners in the first three wow. meters off the ground coming out. We actually did it. There was a test done at the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs where they took the female weightlifters that are up there and the women's resident volleyball team, and they did vertical jumps. And our weightlifters were jumping just as high as some of the, weight, the, the volleyball girls. And they don't do jumping. It's not their sport, but they're doing resistance extensions with the lifts. Yeah. We actually had a girl at the time, our top heavyweight at the time was Cheryl Hayworth. She jumped 27 inches off the ground. She weighed 315 pounds. Wow. Okay? <laughs> There's a lot of offensive linemen that are at D1 and in the professional ranks that can't do that. And our top jump was by Natalie Wolfolk, who was a 2008 Olympian. She jumped 33 inches off the ground. Okay, and she's not a volleyball player, you know, but she had that explosive leg drive because they're doing movements like this. So, but then the coaches will see that and go, oh, we got to start doing it. But we're only going to do two yeah. sets of five at 75% of intensity and think that's going to elicit the yeah. same type of response that she's getting now training these movements six days a week. And it, it's not the same. So you, there's, there has to be more education. There has to be a more of a humbling of the strength conditioning coaches that are out there to learn from other people and not just kind of throw something in there. 
because they just like, well, we can't take out this, this, and this to implement that. And it's like, well, you have to. You know, something's got to give. Plus, they're bound by certain time restrictions, certain yeah. NCA restrictions yeah. in terms of how many hours they can work with these people. So you have issues with that. But for the, the biggest thing that I see is that without sounding disrespectful, they're not educated enough to understand it's a longer progression process before you can actually get to the final result. And if you take the time, you can get you can get the results. I've gotten the results. There's coaches that are out there at the college level that have gotten the results if they take the time. But it's immediately the day one they come in there. You have to start implementing that. And you can't just sacrifice any technique for, well, he's not a weightlifter, he's a football player. Or he's, you know, he's not a weightlifter, she's a volleyball player. It doesn't matter. You know, when people come to my facility and you have weightlifters, you have volleyball players, you have track and field athletes, you have wrestlers, you have um, all these different athletes, all training. And people go, well, which one's the weightlifter? Because they can't tell. They all look said, the same. They all look the same because <laughs> yeah. technically I don't teach different. Mm-hmm. Where some coaches go, well, I don't have to be that disciplined with the technique with this person because he's a football player. Well, he's going to get hurt if yeah. you don't teach him the right way. Yeah. Plus, he's not going to get the full benefits of the performance yeah. benefits out of the movement. So why wouldn't you teach him to be more disciplined? Now, what separates the weightlifter from the football player in my facility is, is the volume or the time spent on those movements. Whereas a football player is not going to have the extended period of time in there because he does have to do other exercises. They're going to be more sp- football specific. Whereas a weightlifter, that is his sport or that is her sport, so they're going to spend more time doing those things. But the general technical approach is the same, you know, and, that, and that's where you just can't deviate you know, from. So let's make the distinction real quick because I think a lot of people that are outside of this kind of realm of, of just lifting in general don't really know the difference between what weightlifting is and maybe something like powerlifting or just anything like that. Can you make that distinction real quick between uh, like weightlifting and then maybe powerlifting and uh, other uh, strength sports? The biggest one is because we use the the name Olympic and then that's actually not an official title. Mm -hmm. We just say weightlifting, but we use Olympic because we are the only barbell sport in the Olympics. We are uh, made up of two movements, the snatch, which is uh, one movement from the floor overhead and one motion, and then the clean and jerk, which is a two-part movement from the floor to the shoulders and from the shoulders then overhead. Whereas powerlifting is three different disciplines, and powerlifting can also be separate disciplines within that in terms of they can just do one of the three, where they have back squat, then they'll have bench press, and then they have deadlift. Those are less technical movements, um, whereas the Olympic lifts are more technical, there's more speed component to them. Um, it takes more time to learn with those, you know. So they are different. We are governed by one national organization mm-hmm. and one international organization. They're governed by 30, you know, 40. Yeah. You know, it, 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 and, and, and it's sad because if they were more uniformed, um, you could see, you'd say, well, there's one world champion, there's one national champion. Now there's like 20. You know, we if you're a national champion in our sport, you've beaten everybody out. There's only one. You're a world champion, there's one. Um, so in that distinction. So aside from the administrative side of it, you know, again, the barbell movements are very diverse. Mm-hmm. We actually use their exercises as assistance exercises to our sport, whereas they don't really use our exercises as, yeah. as assistance exercises to their sport. Yeah. So um, Do you train powerlifters in your facility? I do. I actually have trained powerlifters have done quite well at the national level. Um, I actually am the Tempe Special Olympics powerlifting coach. I've okay. been doing that for eight years or so. And we've had kids that have won state championships in, in powerlifting. We actually have the kid, is, he's like the reigning four-time, four or five-time state champion in Special Olympics powerlifting. He just deadlifted 475 pounds. Wow. Um, That's awesome. You know, he just did that back in May. 
Um, but yeah, we have a lot of experience. You know, once you understand what that was, one also the the benefits of Olympic weightlifting for me was that it was so science based. The biomechanics of movements, the research that was done with it, the understanding of load and intensity, and how volume was was manipulated. So then, when I went into, you know, powerlifting, or if I went into general strength conditioning, it was an easy conversion because you understood science, mm-hmm. you understood movement, and once you understand that, then you can put, put the programming into it. Then it's just you're just you know just changing formats. You're just changing from doing you know a snatch into doing a bench press, or you know developing a football player to be more explosive, to be more vertical. Mm-hmm. You know, so we use those the similar concepts of programming, the understanding load and intensity. Like we have a professional basketball player we're working with right now, and had to show him that like this is a this week is a, a what we call an unload week. It's a period of less volume, less intensity, so his his body neuro, uh, neurologically and physically can just kind of catch his breath. Yeah. So he's like, well, I'm, I'm you know I want to just keep going, 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 going. I'm like, well, you can't have a linear progression where it just goes up in a straight yeah. line where each week, each day just gets harder and harder and harder. It yeah. doesn't work that way. Yeah. You know, our body as an organism doesn't adapt quite like that. You know, there there needs to be dips in that in that development. So because that has allowed me to help in other realms with powerlifting and then Special Olympics or just regular powerlifting. Mm-hmm. So you actually you actually use the bench press for as an assistant movement for Olympic weightlifting. Yeah, but just like as I said yeah. with strength and conditioning, we don't. <laughs> it, I don't make it a focal point. It's yeah. not something where we're doing we're testing you know, and all that. You know, stuff. we're and we, we may do it, and we've actually had athletes that will get you know as we get into our competitive phase of training, we're eliminating that kind of movement. Um, but then we'll have those guys come back, and you know, there's very little dip. You know, we've had some guys that be like, you know, they didn't bench press for four months and come back and their bench press still be within 95% of what they were because of all the heavy pressing movements yeah. that we're doing with Olympic lifting. You know, it's, you know, it's, um, it doesn't drop off that much, you know, now they're not doing nothing, but, the, but they were able to still keep a general capacity when they did it, mm-hmm. you know, but we just don't do it like five times a week, you know. So what's your, what's your um, philosophy on just accessory movements when it comes to programming that for your athletes because I know there's coaches that are very minimalist with it like I know um John Bros uh, he's like well we're gonna do the the, the snatch the, <coughs> the clean and jerk we're gonna do the power versions and we're gonna do the pulls and that's it we're not really gonna mess with anything else but then mm-hmm. you have you know other coaches like let's say internationally like in China who are really big on on um, accessory work even like going as far as to put in like the bodybuilding type movements in there which what's where where do you stand here well you have to look at the philosophies of that go back behind both of those people. Like John Burroughs adopted a philosophy of specificity that came from the Bulgarian method of training, where it was once you've reached a certain point athletically, you then minimized the amount of exercises you do. So that when you've now reached a certain level of national, international competitive experience, that the creator of that, that thinking of specificity was, was a man by the name of Ivan Abajeyev, who is Bulgaria's most famous national coach who just passed away a couple of months ago. But he said, hey, you know, once you've reached a certain level, not with a beginner, that you say, hey, we can't do all these accessory exercises because they're tiring our guys out. And if we took out about half of these accessory exercises and just focused on the specificity of these six, anywhere between three to six exercises, and they have more energy to do them, and we could do them more frequently. So there was a lot of you know research that he did with that, and it showed to be very effective. But the problem is, is that's not with a beginner. It's not with someone who's a novice. It's not with someone who recreationally does this from time to time. It was someone who was already a high-level lifter, meaning they've already dedicated 
eight years into the sport from the time they were a younger kid into the time that they're now in their early 20s, and then they implemented that system. So the problem you get, and this is not knocking John, is that you people, again, get misinformed that anyone can do that. The Chinese method, you know, you have to look back at the overall me methodology and the mentality of the Chinese people. Well, the Chinese people mentality is what? This goes not even in sports, but goes in, in their economy and in their life, is that we're going to outwork you, okay? So if the, the, the average Westerner works an eight-hour day, we're going to work a 10- or 12-hour day. Why? Because we're better than you. That's their mentality. So they carried that over into athletics. And what they also did was they studied the, the Soviet model because it was, it was a communist system back in the day. Yeah. And they learned from the, the old Soviet system, which was a variety of exercises to build the body as a whole. Okay, so we're gonna, if you looked at the body types of the old Soviet weightlifters, they look like bodybuilders. You look at the body types of the Chinese weightlifters now, they look like bodybuilders. You, they could literally walk off the weightlifting platform and put them on a bodybuilding platform <laughs> and they'd probably finish in the top three yeah. because of how much musculature they have. So again, they took the mentality of we're going to talent identify extremely gifted people that can tend to handle extreme amount of work. And then we're going to take those people and we're going to put them into a very intense environment with a lot of variety of exercises that they build the body as a whole unit where there's no weak link. And they said the byproduct of that is they're just going to be phenomenal work machines. And they've been successful at that. But they also have a very short life in terms of a short uh, career in the sport because you know, at some point there's a breaking point. But they also go, all right, you got, you didn't make it. There's five guys right behind you that are ready to take your spot. So you have that added pressure, but also they know that, yeah. you know, if this guy doesn't make it, you know, I know there was a Chinese coach that came to, to, to Mexico who was their, their national coach for a while. And he said, hey, you know, the average, you know, expectancy for a female weightlifter is between 24 and 27 years old. He says after 27, they're no good. Well, at the time, all of Mexico's top female weightlifters were between 29 and 31 years old. So he was saying, all these girls, basically, I don't want to work with them anymore. And their federation was like, these are our best girls. These are girls that went to the Olympics, they've been in world championships, and they're still, like, good. And he says, I don't want to work with them because in China, they would be already weaned out. They'd be retired. The right. younger girls would already be doing so much better, or they'd be a kilo or two off from the older girls, and they would just say, hey, see you later. We'll take our chance with the younger girls. Mexico was like, we can't do that, you know, and in America, we can't do that, too. And actually, the, the exp life expectancy of a female weightlifter in America is a lot later. It could be into their late, early 30s. We had Melanie Roach that made an Olympic team in her, in her I think she was 34, 35 when she did it. We just had um, um, Morgan King was 29 or 30 years old. She just made the, the 2016. Sarah Robles was uh, 28. You know, so they were they were outside of that little bubble. So getting back to what you had said, you know, there's different mentalities. The the Bulgarian method that the John Bros it talks about. Once you have an athlete that has reached a certain level of training experience, that method in small chunks is very effective. Our new national coach Piros Dimas came from Greece. Okay, he's a four-time uh, medalist, three-time gold one, medalist. One of the most decorated weightlifters. In one of the most decorated weightlifters. Um, his he came up, he lived in Albania, and the Albanian system was old Soviet. But then when he moved to Greece, his coach, uh, Christou Ivaku's program was more Bulgarian. And he butted heads at first, but then he made the change. And it became very successful for him because he fit into that system. But he was already an established lifter at that point. He was a lot older. So again, novice, recreational people, the system doesn't work. Okay. And it doesn't even work for the more experienced person because it's very brutal. And people don't remember, too, is that the Bulgarian system, 
The Russian system too, but the Bulgarian system in particular, more so, was heavily drug used. Okay, you had to have take a, an, an enormous amount of drugs yeah. just to stay into that program. So you, that volume of work worked for them because it was it was very intense. Was but yeah. you also had that. Now I'm not saying the Soviets weren't taking stuff, yeah. but they also looked at the the athlete as a whole and said, "Hey, we need to keep them around a little bit longer." So it wasn't uncommon to see an athlete go through what two quads, a quad meaning a four year Olympic period, and see an athlete be a two or time or three time. Demas was an exception. You have to be a little bit of a genetic freak to be able to do what he did. But for the most part, my system is a little combination of both. We train most, mostly well-rounded. Why? Because I get a lot of strength and conditioning athletes. Yeah. But two, because we also train a lot of developmental kids. We have kids, again, as I said, that come in that are very young. So I need to train them as a, as a whole unit. And then as they get older, then we have periods where we mo go more into specificity. We just had the Youth National Championships. Um, couple of weeks ago and I had a kid that he already started in training but he came over to me within the last year so from the last youth nationals to now he came with me so there's a, a year's body of work he improved 55 kilos in one year of training with me it was the what? most improvement <laughs> it was the most improvement of any kid at that event how much is that in pounds for it's, a, it's 120 pounds. 125 pounds oh my but God. you know he took second at that competition last year he snatched 84 kilos he snatched 107 in this competition he went from 102 kilo clean and jerk to 134 and then clean 37 and just missed the jerk which is at 300 pounds and he only weighs 152 pounds <laughs> so actually weighs yeah like 150 pounds wow but he um but it was because right. he did the work he did the work he did the work and then again he's now right now but right before that competition it was more bulgarian-esque if you want to say it was more specificity to snatch and clean and jerk snatch and clean and jerk but now he's done. He's doing a variety of exercises. Why? Because he has to rebuild his body. Mm -hmm. Okay, you can't stay on that, or you're going to have some issues. You know, right now he's doing more volumes. You know, uh, more repetitions, a lot of variety of exercises, so that he's building his body to be have no weak links. One to be able to handle work, so that when now he moves into the next phase of getting ready to the next bigger meet. But those are the things that we do. They're like I said, both systems work. They've shown to work, but you have to find the athlete that can make it work. Yeah. So. It sounds like uh, Olympic lifting, you know, you can kind of program in different ways. Uh, kind of overall, is there a really big difference between programming for something like Olympic weightlifting and uh, like powerlifting, where um, powerlifting, you know, you can utilize a lot of like daily underlying periodization or there's a whole bunch of different methods. Is it kind of similar to that? Or just given the nature of like the lifts that you're performing, is there a kind of uh, difference between how you program? Well, yes and no, you know, because unlike powerlifting, with Olympic weightlifting, well, I should say that, I, and I, I can't say 100% because I don't know every single powerlifting program that's yeah. out there, but for the most part, powerlifters will squat once a week, maybe deadlift once a week. Sometimes they won't even deadlift until certain periods within their training going into and out of competition, mm -hmm. and then they may bench once or twice a week. Um, Whereas Olympic weightlifting, once you reach a certain part, a point of, of, of experience, you're going to do a form of snatch and clean and jerk every day. So where they're doing a squat once, if we just added just how many times a week we may just back squat or do a squat movement, you know, it may be a minimum of three times. With my kid going into the youth nationals, he squatted six times a week not including the full, if you consider a full squat part of the snatch and full squat part of the clean, now you're talking in the, you know, tripling that amount of time. Mm 
Um, so yes, the programming is a little bit different, you know, because you're manipulating volume. Um, so you're looking at, again, what is their end goal? And then you're looking back and saying, all right, you know, we need to do, we do more work. Okay. And in, in, in the simplest form, we do more work. Um, could they handle more work? Probably, but you know, through history and time, um, they just haven't, you know, and there's nothing to knock on them, but you know, because we've trained power, a couple of powerlifters to adopt our methodology, methodology, uh, methodology of training, and we've seen some good results with that. You know, again, depending on the athlete that can handle it, you know, there'll be times where um, powerlifters, like the last week to two weeks out, even we had one guy said the last month out he wouldn't even deadlift because he was going to save his back. And I said, well, we're going to train at a very high intensity level up to three days out. Yeah. You know, before the competition and. For them, that was like blasphemy. Like, how could you do? No, you need like a week off to let your back heal. I'm like, no, you know, like, you know, we have athletes the day of the competition. If their competition scheduled time is at four or five o'clock in the afternoon, we're doing a morning workout. You know, we're doing a morning workout for about 45 minutes to an hour to prep their body. When I had my athlete go to the Olympics in 2012, we did a we did a workout. We did a workout the day before. We did a workout the morning of um, to prep her body. But we train like that. You know, we were doing two-a-day workouts. Right after the Olympics, we were progressing to three-a-day workouts. We were doing three training sessions, three separate training sessions within one day, three times a week, two training sessions on the opposite days a week. You know, you're, it's a tremendous amount of more work than the typical powerlifter. And there's nothing against them. It's just, yeah. again, philosophies and how our bodies need to respond to the training. You know, is it different? You know, but could they handle it? They could handle it. You know, it, it would just be... Again, the adaptation, the adaptation. Well, see, it's it's really interesting that you mentioned that um, because in the past, powerlifters have adapted that kind of squat, bench, deadlift, probably just once, maybe max twice a week. Now, from what I'm seeing, I competed in um, I competed uh, competitive powerlifting. From what I've seen with a lot of coaches, they're starting to adopt that mentality of programming where we're going to squat two, three times a week, deadlift twice a week, bench three, four times a week. Um, the current, um, one of the best coaches here in powerlifting, his name is uh, Joey Flex, um, who's produced several um, IPF world champions. He trains like that, where you're doing squat, bench, deadlift multiple times a week. So I think a lot of that, the methodology that weightlifters and weightlifting coaches adopt have now trickled into the powerlifting community because they see the value in doing a little bit more uh, volume of work. Yeah, and then you've seen in the international powerlifting ranks, when there's a true international powerlifting event, when you see now European, the Soviets, or or now the Russians, or you know the Ukrainian, the Belarusian guys that are now entering power, powerlifting, well, those guys' foundation and strength training came from Olympic weightlifting. So that's what they started doing. So they started training their weightlifters, or excuse me, their powerlifters like weightlifters. So that's when you started seeing that. So then the Americans were going to these international meets and powerlifting and going. Yeah. They're seeing These how guys they're are training. kicking the crap yeah. out of us. And it's like, well, they're training like weightlifters. Are. Yeah. And it's not uncommon to see them do a squat, a bench, and a deadlift all in the same day and then now do that two or three times yeah. a week as opposed to just not doing it all and just waiting until the competition to do it or maybe just doing it once two or three weeks out before the competition starts. They're doing it now, you know, more throughout the year, you know. And it's good, you know, like I said, you know, not – you know, everyone can learn from everybody. You know, like we learn a lot of things from powerlifting. You know, we, 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 we learn, you know, different, you know, things that, you know, that we can now adopt into our programming, you know, sometimes. But they've learned a lot from us as well. So, you know, there's a good relationship. We have a good relationship with powerlifting, you know. Mm -hmm. 
you know, sometimes people think that we're like, you know, obviously at always at odds, and it's never, it's not really the case. No, you know? I think so. No, the, the only thing that's always been the knock Maybe over the, the years. Past, yeah. Well, over the past, the issue was that, you know, most powerlifters can go into any commercial gym and still train, whereas Olympic weightlifters were not allowed. It's, yeah. Because you're dropping weights, you're bringing chalk, you're making too much noise, and people complain. So then they were, you know. Um, you know, shunned off and pushed into garages and basements and, you know, private facilities. And then where the powerlifters were allowed to stay. So, you know, those guys, you know, their sport for a long time prospered more than we did because of that. You know, they were more visibly exposed to the general population. People saw some big dude in the gym, he's squatting a lot or he's bench pressing. And people were like, oh, I want to be like that guy, you know, where they didn't see the guy, you know, snatching 400 pounds because he wasn't there. Yeah. You know, I was fortunate. I was one of the few guys in, in Arizona that actually had an Olympic weightlifting facility in a commercial gym, you know, for several years. And people would be like, man, that's crazy. You know, that's pretty cool. And then we would get people that would be interested in it. Not everyone could do it, but at least they were more aware of it and they were exposed to it a little bit more. You know, and then we had to go private, you know, outside of that facility because, again, we grew and then we just couldn't keep utilizing that same space. But you know, but we, we have a good relationship with powerlifting. I think now you're seeing even a better relationship um, than probably we even had, you know, 20 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I as a powerlifter, I believe that there's a great, like, there's an ab absolute great value in weight programming weightlifting into your routine. So that's actually one of the questions that I wanted to ask you today is um, how would a competitive powerlifter program weightlifting into their, um, into their routine to see some success out of it? Well... I'll use, even though you're asking me about powerlifting, I'm going to use an analogy of strongman because I have a strongman guy that's training with me who basically is asking the same question. You know, he's a strongman, and he wants to know how to implement, and he came to me how to implement more powerlifting moves because he needs to be more explosive and powerful. So, you know, in that situation, like with powerlifting, there's, we, again, as I talked about earlier, is breaking the movements up into pieces. So there's certain pieces of the Olympic lifting movements or how we teach the movements that become exercises onto themselves. So one in particular would say would be a, what is called a clean pull. With, with, in powerlifting, you have a deadlift. We have a, a version of the deadlift where we're, we're fully extending on our toes and we're shrugging. With powerlifting, not only would we add that movement into a powerlifter's workout, but we also may abbreviate that movement to just go from above the knee. So we'll go from above the knee, say from our rack position or off of blocks, and now from above the knee, they have to extend up their toes and shrug as fast as they can, okay? Well, developing that fastness, you know, will help them with their pull, okay? Same thing with now showing them variations of their squat. If they're normally a wide stance, low bar back squat, or we say now bring your feet in and do a high bar back squat. May introduce front squats. Develop the legs differently, okay, than they're normally doing, but also doing different forms of tempo squats, where they're doing now a three or four second eccentric control low and then explode out doing squats to a certain rack position where you have pegs into the rack. They're squatting to a certain a depth weight, be parallel, slightly below parallel, holding that position under tension and then exploding out. And then timing that position and saying, hey, from, from that parallel squat position to full extension, you're averaging a, one second. I need you to be a point, point 0.9, okay? Now see how fast you can move 75, 80% of your max for five doubles at that weight. And now we're gonna time that. We have another form of calculation, another goal that we can set for them. So they know now if they're moving from that position up, now they can be faster. Same thing, they're implementing push presses to develop the shoulder strength and the overhead stability work, okay? Over, implementing overhead squats. Again, 
from a flexibility standpoint, because what happens with shoulders from doing too many bench presses, the anterior delts pull them forward and they get impingement issues in their, in their delts. Well, now we can now show them how to do overhead squatting movements, presses from behind their neck in various different planes of motion. They're gonna gain more flexibility. They're gonna have to now balance out the muscles in the front with the muscles in the back, okay? So they'll have less injuries. Um, over uh, repetitive overuse injuries from just doing bench, 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 bench all the time. Same thing with the deadlifts. Again, just showing them different stances. You know, we, a conventional uh, uh, powerlifter is taught be flat footed, but then sit back on your heels and just kind of like sit back and go. We teach to be more a flat foot. Flat foot so you have a better center of balance that you can drive off of. Just showing them how to be different. You know, also you have guys that have historically only split gripped on their deadlift. And now you're starting to see some powerlifters now going both thumbs down, but hook gripping their hands. And some of the strongest guys in the world are hook, you know, are deadlifting over 800 pounds with a hook grip, you know, because now they're, they're, now they're in better alignment. They're not now tearing biceps because their arms yeah. are out of alignment. Um, so different things like that we would, we would implement with them. Um, again, with the programming, it's a little bit more complex, but again, teaching them how to mechanically be more efficient, showing them accessory exercises to develop different aspects of their lifts. Again, whether it's the lower back, their upper back, position strength with their squatting, position strength, and taking the movements to a different level for them. Partial movements, just having them deadlift, deadlift from a deficit. Only deadlifting to the bar to above the knee, what we call our first pull movements. They're taking the bar from the floor to above the knee. Just developing that aspect of the glutes and the hamstrings can have tremendous benefits for a powerlifter. Again, as opposed to just they do the same deadlift over and over and over again, or they're just doing sumo over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And whereas now they're developing other, again, like the, the method, methodology we talked about with the Russian system before, they're developing the body as a whole unit. So they're developing that there's no weak links in that chain. And then, then with the programming, they'll be better, you know, overall. So these variations in movements, um, would you program uh, these movements further out from competition and then um, become more specific as we get closer in yeah. because obviously we have less time um, to work with a powerlifting athlete because we don't like if you're prepping somebody for the Olympics it's going to take them four years as opposed to somebody who's competing in powerlifting where it might be every three months or so. Well we still have our events that will be every three months or we'll have a national events and we have you know you know you may have three or four national events in a year so the time the, 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 the programming may be the it would be the same in terms of alright you know it depends on when you get that person it depends on when that next big event is, and then you would backtrack. You know, say, hey, we have six months, okay? We have six months to play around with between this point and then the point of when we need to be ready for that competition. My philosophy, my program, anywhere between eight to 12 weeks out, that's specificity. So the last three months, eight, two months to three months, is going to be more specificity of training. So we're going to be, you know, decreasing the amount of exercises at that point. But again, it depends on the person. If they're still a very young athlete, we may push that within a month so that only four weeks going into that competition, you know, will be more specificity of training. Because a more experienced person, it may be a little bit different. Bigger competition, a little bit more different. But then that gives you then that three months prior that you're now adding more variety. But the variety has to have a goal. You just can't have variety for the sake of having variety. Each thing has to have a specific goal that you're saying, all right, if you do this, if you're able to do clean pulls, at 275 pounds, at this speed or this, you know, technical proficiency, this will should correlate into your deadlift being this, you know, 375, 400 pounds, whatever, you know. And you look at those different correlations. In weightlifting, we have that. We say, hey, if you can do a power snatch with this amount of weight, it should, you should, your 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 snatch should be this. 
You can power clean this, your clean should be this. You can back squat this, your front squat should be this, your clean should be this based off those numbers. Powerlifting is still learning how to do that. You know, the problem is that sometimes they do movements that are so diversely different that there's not a correlation or a transfer into it. That's why power, some powerlifting movements we don't do because they don't transfer into our movements. Again, that's why we high bar back squat with a narrow stance because the position of a high bar back squat is similar to how we're gonna pull the bar off the ground, okay? The stance is gonna be fairly similar. The body position is gonna be fairly similar. Doing a low bar wide stance powerlifting style <laughs> back squat does, for us does not translate well, in, or transfer yeah. over into us movements, okay? So that's why the front squat is so much more of a transfer exercise in to our movement of doing the clean because that's the finishing point of doing it. For the longest time we used the overhead squat as an exercise to indicate to us whether someone is going to be good at doing Olympic weightlifting. We've now progressed to, can someone take the bar with a snatch grip on their back, press into an overhead squat, stay there, place the bar on their back, press the bar up, and then stand up. Because that's showing flexibility, it's showing strength, it's showing hip flexibility and strength and control. That has more now of an indicator that we know that that exercise will correlate more into someone whether they can do the movements. Powerlifting is a little bit different. They used to say, all right, if you can bench press this, you can incline this and vice versa. It was like 85%, you know, whatever you could do. But now because of the suits and because of the equipment and because of, you know, the wraps and the, the technique of the wide stance or the wide grip on the bench, the super arching in the back, they don't transfer it anymore. You know, before you say, all right, if you can bench press 315, you should be able to close grip at least 275, 300 pounds. But again, because you're, if you're using equipment, you're not using equipment, the transfer is now not the same. So the numbers don't translate. We had a guy that came into the gym and he was a pilot. He wanted me to train him. He needed equipment. He could bench press 300 pounds raw. He bench pressed 600 pounds with his shirt on. Sure, yeah. And I'm like, that's insane. And I'm like, you know, now you have these guys. We, we train one guy. He's like, I want to bench press 700 pounds. I want to bench press 700 pounds. He was like a 500-pound bench presser. He got this shirt that was like, it literally like could sit on the floor by itself and stand up and not, you know, it was like a suit of armor. By the time he put it on, he got to 650 where he was able to press it. He's like, I got to put 700 on it just to say I put it on there. He got to the point, actually, it was, I think it was with 600. 600 pounds, he could not bring the bar to his chest because the shirt wouldn't let him. Yeah. He literally was pulling down on the bar to bring it to his chest. It was 600 pounds. You know, I said, no offense, but for me, this is not sport. You know, the equipment is assisting you so much that it's not a true indicator of your, you know, your fitness level. And again, not the bash powerlifting, but back to the original point of, like, some existence exercise will correlate over. That's why you see... You know, in powerlifting, guys are doing, you know, lockouts. They're doing heavy lockouts. They're doing chain stuff. They're doing band stuff. Why? Because the shirt takes you to here, and then you just have to work on your triceps and your final point. Same thing with the suit and the knee wraps. You're just doing lockouts with the weight because everything else is taking you from bottom position up. They still they are trying to make a deadlift suit, but it's not the same. But what do they do? They do sumo stands. Now these guys are doing splits, and the bar's moving three inches. I'm like, come on. You know, like, but again, you then have to train specificity for that. But if you train to be strong, if you train with a variety of exercises, it will translate and carry over. You know, I didn't want to go off on a tangent over there. Like I said, I'm not trying to bash them, but it is a completely different animal. We have very minimal equipment that we use, and the, that equipment does not assist yeah. to the degree of a bench shirt adding 300 pounds or more yeah. to some and, guy. Uh, I don't think anybody's going to be offended because the, the sport of, of uh, geared powerlifting has kind of um, lost favor, and it's a lot more of the raw powerlifting now. I think specifically because of that i think people were training powerlifting and doing all of these um 
other variety of movements, expecting that it would have some transfer over to the actual lifts. But what they found was that if you train for geared lifting, um, it's your training is going to be completely different from training for raw lifting because it's not the movements aren't just going to have the same carryover into your competition lifts um, as you know as it would for a raw lifting. Yeah, and it was hard, and it, we know we had a guy that was like, you know. I'm looking at the numbers, his training numbers, like raw. I'm going, there's no way you're going to bench press this yeah. weight. And he's like, oh, yeah, I got it. I'm like, there's no way. I'm like, you can't, you know, I think he bent, we had one guy, he could barely bench press raw like 285. He benched 365 in a meet. And you're going like, or three, it was 385. And I'm going like, it's like a 100 pound difference. And I'm like, but they don't realize too the stress on their joints and their tendons and ligaments because they're not training with those percentages or within like, a reasonable range of those percentages, then you all of a sudden you add that weight on. You know, that's why you see, you see so many more injuries yeah. in their sport because of that. They think, oh, weightlifting is, da is dangerous for you. I'm like, yeah, but you guys are just as bad, if not worse. You know, because the rate of catastrophic injuries in our sport is very low. You know, one, if you're coached by someone who knows what they're doing. And two, when you see these catastrophic injuries, you see them at the World Championships, the yeah. Olympics, and people don't know the backstory. It's like, it's the Olympics. You're going to save a lift that you normally would just kind of yeah, let go. You would it's dump, the world but stage. in the powerlifting, <laughs> yeah. you see these guys in like routine lifts that are getting hurt, and it's just because the the weights now, the tendons and the ligaments finally say, you know, I'm out. Like I can't do this anymore. And we had a guy that did that. You know, he did powerlifting meet and he popped, you know, he tore his rotator cuff because he was a guy too. He was kept going back and forth between raw and equipped, raw and equipped, and then he did a raw meet. He's like, well, this is where I should be based off of this. I was like, you're way estimating way too high, and then he blew his shoulder out. You know, and it was like, he was lucky there were spotters there, you know, he still have that 500 pounds on his chest, you know, but, but yeah, it's, it's different, you know, it's different, but it can definitely be programmed, you know, but again, you have to take that into consideration. Are they equipped? Are they not? What's the style of technique that they're using? Um, and then you, you as a coach, you would have to then say, all right, what's the best method for this guy, this girl? You know, like I said, I don't really train equipped power lifters because of that, you know, and again, nothing against it is because. I should say the amount of time and energy that I would have to put into the research for that, I'm not willing to do it. Yeah. Because it's not my area. You know, could I do it? Yeah, I just don't, you know, it's not my area. But that's why we do the raw kids, you know, whether it be the Special Olympics kids, because we literally we train them like weightlifters. Only difference is they're, you know, they're doing bench press and deadlift, you know, type of thing. Let's transition over to out of training and just talking about a little bit about the Olympics, because as we mentioned earlier, you were a coach at the 2012 Olympics. How did you even get that position? How did you even get that job? Well, back up a little bit. So yeah. prior quad, quad meaning the prior Olympics going in 2008, um, coaching selection was purely deemed off of um, our National Federation selecting coaches. And a lot of people got mad because it was like, hey, man, I'm producing athletes to these levels. I should be rewarded for my production and not just picking a random coach mm -hmm. um, just based off of, you know, his years experience or something like that. He may not have worked with my particular athlete. So going into that Olympics and then and pretty much going forth, um, our National Federation said, hey, if you produce, you know, an athlete like you're going to you're going to get rewarded. And the last three years going into that Olympics in 2012, um, 10, 11, and 12, I had the number one female weightlifter in the country. Um, her name was Sarah Robles. And I was, um, go that quad, if you had the number one athlete on any international team, you were deemed, you were picked to be that head coach. So in 2011, I was the world team coach. 2010, I was the Pan Am team coach. Um, 
because and then the Olympics I was the head coach for the women's team because I had had the number one ranked girl. Um, same thing if you had the number one ranked guy, they picked that guy. And then we had other assistants and national coaches that helped out. Um, but you know that three years, pretty much that three years going into it, I was the head. I was the national coach for every major major event going into the Olympics. Um, but it was purely based off of production, which I feel it should be. You know, now we've kind of changed it a little bit, but production is still a major, major part of it, which shows that you've had to produce somebody. You know, and I worked with her from 2008 going into 2012, um, fairly religiously um, for that entire stretch of the time period, and it was um, it was pretty grueling. You know, there was a lot of sacrifices that had to be made, especially going into that Olympic year because, you know, I always tell people she was the number one ranked girl for three years going into that. You know, if we didn't finish that year number one, and on the Olympic team. Everything was everything didn't mean anything. It was a complete waste. Mm-hmm. Um, so I tell people that the making the Olympic team that year was there was more pressure on us than actually competing in the Olympics, because we again we would be considered a failure if we did it. And she pulled it out, you know. And then in the Olympics she did pretty good. Um, and then I don't work with her anymore. But then she went on and, and won a medal in 2016. And in part of me I take a little bit of solace knowing that I had something to do with that because yeah. I, you know, I trained her from 2008 to 2013. Um, she made, you know, tremendous progress with me. Um, and then those, you know, we didn't work with her going into 2016, but she, um, the numbers she hit at the Olympics were actually less numbers than she did it with training with me back in 2013, mm-hmm. which I was like, Hey, you know, I felt pretty good. <laughs> so, so, you know, I don't take full credit, you know, cause the coach that was working with her, I gave him a lot of credit, you know, he had to deal with her. Um, Mentally, but it's all right. What did that out? But anyway, but uh, I had, uh, you know, I felt I took a little solace knowing that, you know, it's kind of like someone who's a someone who's someone who's like a you know a carpenter or a builder. You 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 built that building, you you built the foundation, you know, and you despite numerous people going in and out of the house, you realize you had something to do with that, you know. People may paint it a different color, but you know, you still the foundation is there. The foundation was there, so. Um, and then we've had other athletes that we've worked with over the years that have gone on to, that we've coached at the world championships, the junior world level, and they've gone on. Um, and that's part of having, you know, doing this for a long time is that eventually someone's going to move on and then you've had success. And then, you know, you know you've done their, your, your job if they've continued to have success. Mm-hmm. You know, that they leave you and then they, you know, fall off the wagon. You know, it's sad, you know. But, you know, you hope that they can then take what you've, you've taught them and they moved on. Absolutely. Uh, so not to, you know, bash USA in the Olympics or anything, but, you know, compared to other countries like China or something like that, when, at least in the Olympic, you know, stage, um, we kind of fall short in terms of like meddling and things like that. What do you think personally, uh, USA needs to do to kind of get up to that next level? I mean, you mentioned the heavy use of drugs. Do you think it's just as that? It's one component of it, you know, you know. We drug test our athletes in America to make sure you're not taking drugs. A lot of other countries drug test their athletes to make sure they can pass the drug test. Completely different mentality. Yeah. They would have the support of their, their government yeah. to fund the athletes on in a very big budget. We don't. You know, our sport is growing tremendously. We have more people participating in weightlifting now than when I first started, let alone four years ago or five years ago when I took um, an athlete to the Olympics. We have more participants, but funding is a big deal. What I think still personally is going to attract more people in the sport, yes, is going to be the funding, but I've said it for a long time, funding the right people. 
since 2000, when, when, when women's weightlifting was first introduced in the sport, we've had the most team members and we've had more Olympic medalists in the, the women's side of weightlifting than we had the guy side. But yet we fund both men and women's programs equally the same. Mm. And it's like, well, wait a minute. They're producing more than the guys, but we keep throwing money into the guys and they still haven't produced. So in one aspect, other countries would be where it's like if you have a company and you go, hey, you know, you know, our company sells sneakers and we're killing in sneakers, but, you know, the umbrella set division is not really killing it. But we're going to keep giving them both equal amount of money and we're going to hope the best yeah. happens. Yeah. Well, the CEO or the accountant of the company is eventually going to go like, we're not giving the umbrella guy any more money because he's, he's not producing. He's yeah. not producing. You know, we're going to now fund more money into the sneaker guy because we'll see what happens, you know. So we need to take that approach. Mm-hmm. One. Second thing, and I've, I've been a bit advocate for this for many, many years, is that we need to have more college programs. Getting accepted in the NCA is kind of like, you know, a long shot and it won't probably ever happen, but that's not what we need. We just need more colleges to recognize and allow us to have programs there where kids can actually get a scholarship to go to that school. We have about four programs in the country right now. We have Lindenwood University in St. Louis. We have Northern Michigan University in Marquette. We have East Tennessee State University in Tennessee, and we have um, LSUS in Shreveport, Louisiana. And these, our these main are schools program. that offer scholarships? That offer scholarships for kids to be weightlifters. Wow, that's awesome. And the school recognizes really it. In cool. some cases, like in Lindenwood, they actually give them a, a, a travel budget as well. So kids can go to those schools and get a scholarship for weightlifting. Mm-hmm. We used to have, when we had a training center at the Olympic Training Center, that was another option where if a kid made it to the Olympic Training Center, he would get school paid for while he was there. But we need about 25 of those, if not 30 of those schools. Yeah. If we're going to get at least 10 scholarships in each of those 25 or 30 schools, then the kids that are coming up can go, wow. The parents of those kids coming up can go, wow. And it may also take a kid that's a phenomenal athlete and say in football or track and field or wrestling, and he's also good in weightlifting, and now he's going to have to decide. Yeah. He's like, you know, hey, I may go sit on the bench at this D1 school, but I may be the starter at a weightlifting yeah. school. Or it's going to be the kid that goes, hey, he's 5'8", he's 155 pounds. He thinks he's going to be 6'3", he's going to be 285 and be the left tackle for the USC. And it's like, hey, dude, you're not. But he still has that dream in his head. Mm-hmm. But if we can get him early enough, even with Sarah Robles, who I took the Olympics in 2012, I was lucky because she was a track athlete at Arizona State University. She was only uh, 19 years old. Unfortunately, most of our top athletes that we get into the sport are older. Morgan King that we got, we, we came into the sport, she was already 28 years old or 27 years old when mm-hmm. she came in. No offense, and she still did really well, but you don't want to bank on all your athletes coming into the sport at 28, 29 years old. Yeah. You want to get them at 14, 15. Now we're going to have these kids coming up the system, and they go, hey, we can go to college for this. I can stick around the sport. Great. Like I just came back from the youth nationals we had in, in Atlanta, Georgia, there was 800 kids competing on the national level. This is the largest we've ever had a competition. But we see a huge drop-off from the kids lifting at the youth level to the junior level, and even a bigger drop-off from the junior into the senior level. And the number one question is already asked to me is that, well, can he go to college on this? Oh, he can't? Well, he needs to now devote his time less in the gym and now on school or in something else that he can or she can now get a college, a college scholarship towards. So now if we can say, well, wait a minute, now there's an opportunity. Okay, now we're going to be in a better situation to lure those kids in, get better kids. We fund the better kids a little bit better. So now that they don't have to worry about anything. One of our issues going into 2012 was was we were getting Sarah was getting paid nothing. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. You know, I was supporting her. We had other people and sponsors that were supporting her, but it was like extremely hard, you know, but the end result was she did extremely well. But if she could have had more issue, uh, more funding taken care of her, she didn't have a lot of funding issues taken care of until after the Olympics when all these other sponsors jumped on the bandwagon. Yeah. You know, but if we could have had more funding going into that, that year, three years out, four years out, two years out, we don't have to worry about it. We just had a top uh, heavyweight girl from England training with us for about three weeks. Um, England is kind of in our situation, but worse, and they lost their funding. They lost their national training center. She's a top girl that can make it to their world championship. She's a top girl that can make the Olympics. She just came into the sport kind of like Sarah from track and field. She was a shot putter and a discus thrower. But she's like, I'm working full time. I got to train. I'm like, I'm sleeping like very little. Yeah. I'm like scraping by with food, you know, and, and nutritional supplements and this and this. And she's still producing. You know, she's competing this weekend in, in, in their national championships. And when she was training with us, she was lifting weights that would have that were 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 little. There was two or three kilos away from her national records. Yeah, I mean, imagine if you know she was you know paid well and didn't she have was, to worry. About she didn't have to worry. Job. Even you know sports medicine. You know food. We had situation was just you know getting Sarah enough calories yeah. that she could eat. To you know sports medicine. We had situations. We even when we had our tr Olympic training center, weightlifters were up there. Weightlifters would go into the physical and get physical therapy or get ice or get something. And they'd be like, oh well, uh, everything costs now. Say, you're only allowed to come in here so many times because it costs now. And it's like, you know, we need a bag of ice. You, you know, we need a cold plunge. We need a massage. We need an adjustment. Oh, you're only limited to like one a month. It's like, you know, you can't, you can't have these athletes competing against elite level athletes where all that is provided for them and say, oh, wait, wait a minute. We want the same results. Oh, you just don't want it bad enough. Like, yeah. bullshit. You know yeah, what I mean? It's like, we just can't, you can't put us in the same, you can't say, all right, I'm going to have no budget. I'm going to, you know, we're going to play, you know, on, on an asphalt field. We're going to have no pads. And, oh, yeah, instead of a football, we're going to throw a rock around. Oh, yeah, by <laughs> the way, you're going to have to go compete against the Patriots, uh, you know, week one. It's like, you know, you're, 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 you're fighting an uphill battle, yeah. you know. Cause, and I've had arguments with international coaches before, and they'd be like, oh, you know, you know, you can't, you know, you should be, you know, the wealthiest country in the world. You should be. I was like, but we're not getting that money, yeah, yeah. you know, and we're not, you know, now the money's coming a little bit more. Um, we've had some issues with how, who this should get that money. As I said, you know, we're funding men just as much as we're funding women, even though the women have done better, you know, so I would have taken that approach, fund the women more, at least over the next squad and say, Hey, what's going on? We had four women compete at the Olympics in, two, in Rio in 2016. We had one guy, we had one guy in 12. We had one guy in eight. Okay. Oh, excuse me. We had, uh, two guys in eight. I'm like, we've had four, three, four, three, you know, it's like. You know, fund the program that's doing better. Yeah. See what happens. You know, so those issues, I think if we did that with the popularity that there is now, we're going to get a couple of kids. Like right now, I have a couple of, couple of kids that I took to the youth nationals. They've already made the decision, I'm not doing football. I'm not doing my other sport that I was doing, and I am just full-time focused. Before, we wouldn't get a kid till he was 18, maybe 23 years old. Yeah. And we had to wait till they were, did their either high school sport or their college sport. And at that point... I don't want to say they're too old, but usually they've Lost now... a lot of the development time. Well, that and they've, they, you know, now whatever injury they acquired from football or wrestling or whatever else, now it's intensified with our sport. You have to deal with that. In that you have sport. to deal with that. And, you know, now we have a kid that he comes in, we don't have to worry about that, the life expectancy of the kid. We don't have to say, oh, yeah, we got a Morgan King. She did. She made the Olympic team in like three and a half, four years. 
but she was an exception. Yeah. You know, again, it's like if you're banking on starting a, a pro sports team with just old veteran free agents, you're not going to be very well. You have to have the draft. You have to build through younger talent that comes up. And then, yeah, one pops in, is a missing piece of the puzzle. That helps you out. You know, some veteran leadership, maybe they're more experienced, but... At the same time, we've also had issues with, like, even with Sarah that when she came in the sport because things came so fast to her. And we had a guy that was already training for three or four years before she got there. And there was things about, she didn't know certain things about the sport, you know. And she was, in her early career, she was ignorant. Like, and she didn't care. And she's like, well, I don't care about that. And I was like, well, you know, you do have to care about that because now you're going to become an ambassador to the sport. Mm-hmm. Whereas someone who's paid their dues and came up, you know, it, they, they understand it. You know, they understand that there's a rite of passage coming up. But if we did have more scholarships in college, we had more funding, we have definitely more opportunities to even train than there ever has been, um, you know, than uh, before. But we still need better coaching. Um, I was one of the coaches selected at the Youth Nationals to evaluate our, our the technical talent of our 13 and under kids. And I sat along with Piros Dimas and... You know, we were we were basically grading kids, you know, for three hours on their technical, you know, ability. So they were lifting the weights. They were being judged by the, the referees on whether they made the lift correct or not. But I'm saying, yes, you made the lift correct. But I'm saying, was it to the standard that we want? And we were working with those, uh, writing out evaluations on that. And there were some moments where we were like, oh, my God, like, how did kid, this kid even get here? Like, mm-hmm. you know, he would turn to me and goes, if that kid's coach... Did, brought that kid to a national competition in Greece or in Russia or in Bulgaria. He says his coach would be would be sh- shunned out of the gym, and he would be publicly embarrassed because he brought a kid that was not physically prepared, technically to this competition. Mm-hmm. And I said, "You're right, but we're not in that situation," yeah. you know. And I said, "You know, <laughs> my downside is I tell it as it is," and I would tell the guy, you know. And you know, people go, you know, Michelle is not a nice guy. I was like, "Why?" Because I tell you the truth, you know. But <laughs> the kid shouldn't be here. You know, one time I had a, a dad call me up from Colorado, an 11-year-old kid, and he wanted to compete at the Youth Nationals, and this was several years ago. And he's like, oh, he didn't qualify in Colorado. Can we drive down to Arizona and, and compete at your event because he needs to qualify? And I was like, send me a video of what the kid looks like in, his, in his, his last two competitions. And the kid was horrible. He's 11. And I said, you don't need to compete. Your son doesn't need to go to this meet. Your son needs to train. I said, here's a list of a couple of coaches that are very good in your area. Please reach out to them. Because he was just the, you know, the mentality of, like, I want my kid to go to a national meet. And he doesn't care. Wants to live vicariously through his Exactly. <laughs> and I was just like, hey, man, like, your kid's not ready. Like, there's no shame in going, like, you're not ready. Yeah. You know, the, spend more time, develop the right skill sets, and then we'll see what happens. So, you know, that's where I, I feel that better coaching, the funding in the right ways um, and then obviously the college scholarships would be a tremendous benefit to us because I think now the popularity has gotten there. Where I think people will jump on. We only, we, you know, we have a couple people, but we need one or two more people to really do it at a high level. And then I think it's going to, the tipping point will happen, you know, and there'll be this, once you get that media attention, yeah. then everyone's going to start jumping on board. And then that's when the, the sponsors dollars come in and that's going to be huge. Absolutely. Well, unfortunately, uh, we're getting close up here on time, so let's just ask really quick, uh, where can people find you if they you know, want to ask any questions or uh, talk about your facility a little bit too? Uh, my facility is in Mesa, Arizona. Um, our, our, our website is uh, performance1.net, www.performance1.net. You can also find us on uh, Facebook at uh, Facebook, 
com slash performance one um you know we're we're not an open facility so people just can't come in and like use our facility um but we're you know always willing to work with new athletes um you know contact me through either phone or um email is the best and we have a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds like i said 11 years old to 65 you know that come in here our biggest thing is what we are not purely a recreational facility and you know, our facility is geared towards the improvement of athletic performance so whether you're an athlete training for a sport or you're a weightlifter getting ready to rock and roll um, and take it more serious um, there are other facilities that are they're there for recreation we're just not that you know facility so we are a little bit selective in that regards but the quality of coaching like I said you'll get um, you know 99.9 percent of the time I'm there coaching you know and it's a good thing and it's a bad thing because, you know, I don't get too many vacations. But <laughs> but because of that, you get a lot of attention, yes. you know. So whether you're someone who's just like we have a lot of people that are just in town visiting for the summer or we have, again, you know, athletes that are just wanting to take their 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 level of training to a, to, um, a higher level, you know, whether it's the, the, the technical understanding of the movements, whether it's the programming that we offer or just the mentality, how I bring it, you know. We've been very successful in producing that. Awesome. Well, that does it for uh, this episode of the Igor Podcast. Thanks, everybody, for watching. You can find me, Michael Navarro, at MikeyErnesto underscore the Agora on Instagram. Mr. Juan Schroth. Find me at Agent J. Schroth at everything. <laughs> and uh, thank you guys for uh, tuning in. I can't wait for this to go live. This is probably one of the most exciting podcasts we've had. Um, thank you, Joe, for being here. That was, uh, that was thank amazing. You. Thank you. Thank you very thank much. You. Appreciate it. Thank you. What does Agora stand for again?